As I was saying, we're going to continue our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and this evening we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. As I mentioned in the morning service today, that the attending to the hearing of the Word of God and its exposition is an integral part of worship. And so I'd ask the congregation to stand as we worship God by giving heed to His Word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the loss of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, if you have ears to hear the Word of God, then give heed to what you've just heard. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our Father, as we examine and meditate upon this portion of sacred Scripture, which comes to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is also the Spirit of truth, we pray that He would assist us by His illumination, that we might understand the full import of what we have just heard. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all of the passages that are found in the Bible, I doubt if there is any one passage in all of Scripture that I've devoted more personal attention to than the text that I have just read to you, because this text is so foundational to our understanding of God's revelation and our understanding 
of the gospel. You can hardly help but notice the abrupt change in the tone of the epistle from what we looked at last Sunday evening where Paul introduced the theme of the entire book of Romans by speaking of the revelation of that righteousness of God which is by faith to all who believe. And so Paul introduces this epistle by mentioning the main theme of the revelation of that righteousness that is available to us in the gospel. And so after that introduction and the setting forth of the theme of the epistle, I think that we would naturally assume and expect that he would then plunge immediately into an explanation of the content of the gospel and a an explanation of this doctrine of justification by faith alone that is so central to the epistle. But he no sooner mentions this wonderful revelation of the righteousness that is by faith that he switches and now introduces another revelation, the revelation of the wrath of God. And there's a method to his madness. I'm sure the reason why the apostle introduces the wrath of God at this point is that no one can really fully appreciate the good news as good news except against the backdrop of our guilt before God. The good news is an announcement to people who universally are under the indictment of God and exposed to His wrath. People are not all that concerned today about the gospel because they don't know anything about the law of God, and they are not at all familiar with the revelation of His wrath. If people really were sensitive to this manifestation of God's anger towards them, Even if they were not moved by the Holy Spirit, they would be so moved by enlightened self-interest that they would flee as fast as they could to any hearing of the gospel. But our necks have become so hardened, our hearts so calcified that we have no fear of God. We don't believe in His wrath. We think that He is incapable of it, and we listen to preachers everywhere telling us that God loves us unconditionally. And when we hear that, there is no reason to fear His wrath. But what the apostle says here, before he develops the theme of the gospel, is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. I want to speak to that for a moment. First of all, when he speaks of the wrath of God here, he uses the Greek word orge. And yes, if you're a student of etymology, of language, you know that the English word that derives from this Greek word orge is the English word orgy. 
And when we think of an orgy, we think of a situation where people are involved in unbridled, erotic, and sexual behavior. It is a condition where people are involved in eroticism with reckless abandon, letting their passions be expressed without restraint. And so we wonder what is the point of contact between the English word orgy and the Greek word that Paul is using here for wrath. The point of contact is this, that what Paul is telling us here, beloved, is that God is not simply annoyed. He's not merely irritated, but His anger is a, an anger of passion that there are paroxysms of rage and fury in God for the things that He mentions here. And Paul says God has revealed His fury for what? It is an anger that is directed not against innocence, not against righteousness, but against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now think for a second how perfectly appropriate it is that a holy and righteous God would be moved to anger against evil. A good judge who has no distaste for evil would not be a good judge at all. But notice that God is angry with two distinctive things that are mentioned ungodliness or irreverence, impiety would be another word. The Latin is impietas here, and unrighteousness. And when we think of those two terms, we tend to think of ungodliness as a particularly religious transgression, maybe because of blasphemy or irreverence or the like. And unrighteousness would describe an immoral activity or behavioral pattern among our people. So that we might look at this text and say, well, God is mad at two things. He's mad at us for being irreverent, and He's mad at us for being immoral. But I don't think that's the force of the text because Paul is using a grammatical structure here that we find sporadically here and there throughout the Bible a grammatical structure that is called a hendiatus, which literally means two for one, where two distinct things are mentioned in the same breath, but they are synonyms pointing to one basic thing. And so I think a proper understanding of what Paul is saying here is that God is angry, furious, with a particular sin then when we examine that sin, it is seen to be both ungodly, irreverent, and unrighteous or immoral. Now, those two terms, ungodliness and unrighteousness, are wide and vast generic terms that cover a multitude of sins. 
But Paul's not talking about a multitude of sins at the moment. He has in view one particular sin. There's one sin that provokes God's anger. And what I want us to grasp here, dear friends, is that this sin is a universal sin. It is a sin committed by every human being. It, that, it is that sin that most clearly expresses our Adamic nature, our corruption and fallenness in the flesh. Now, Paul doesn't leave us to guess about the nature of this sin. He names the child. He specifies what it is that provokes God to this orgy of anger. After he says that this wrath is directed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, comma, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There it is. The single sin that provokes God's wrath against the whole human race is the sin of suppressing truth. The Greek word here, the, the, the uh, root of the word is the word katakane, which can be translated to hinder, to stifle, to incarcerate, to put in detention, to obscure, to suppress, or to repress. If I can use an illustration for the meaning of this, it's the idea, if you can think of a gigantic spring or a coil, that in order to compress that coil, you would have to use all of the strength in your body to push it down. And all the while you're pushing it down, it's resisting your strength and is forcing against you wanting to spring back up or recoil into its original position. What Paul is saying is that we're taking the truth of God, and by nature we take that truth of God, and we press it down. We force it into our subconscious, as it were, to get it out of our mind. And yet all of the strength that we use to suppress that truth of God, we simply cannot eradicate it. We can't get rid of it because it is always and everywhere pushing back up, trying to come again into the surface. Well, again, we're still speaking generally, aren't we? That the specific sin is the suppression of truth. Now we have to ask, what truth is being suppressed? And again, Paul doesn't leave us to wander in the dark about that question as he declares exactly what truth it is, where he goes on to say in verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Ha! Ah. So the truth that every human being suppresses is the truth of God. The truth that God reveals of Himself in nature 
to the whole human race. We're not talking now about suppressing the truth of God that we learned through the Bible. We do that too. But he's speaking here of a truth that is known of God outside of the Bible, apart from the Bible. A knowledge of God that God makes manifest. Again, God is angry because what may be known of Him is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. I don't want to skip over that too fast. The Greek word here is phoneros. It means to show plainly. We use the term phenomenon, which is derived from that Greek word. The Latin text here translates the Greek word phoneros by the Latin manifestum. That is, the knowledge that God gives of Himself is not obscure. It's not buried with hidden clues that only an intellectual elite group of people are able to discover after a painful and tedious search and sifting through the evidence. No. It's the truth that God gives of Himself that's manifest. It's clear. It's plain. So plain that everybody gets it. He says it's clear, and you know why it's clear? Because God Himself is the teacher. You know, we can't say here that if the student doesn't learn, the teacher didn't teach. That would impugn the ability and the integrity of the Almighty, who is the one in His revelation that is showing it to everybody, making it plain and clear. I mentioned of the young man I talked to at the door two weeks ago whose friend introduced him as an agnostic. The Greek agnosis means without knowledge. The agnostic portrays himself as a less militant form of atheist. The atheist boldly declares, there is no God. The agnostic says, I don't know if there's a God or not. I'm agnosis. I am without sufficient knowledge to make a firm judgment on this matter. The Latin there, incidentally, is ignoramus. And I said to the young man, I said, you know, you, you say that you're an agnostic, and you're sort of being gentle about your atheism. You think that you're not as militant, and maybe you're hedging your bets, but don't you realize that your agnosticism puts you at greater risk and exposure to the wrath of God than if you were a militant atheist? Why? Because not only do you refuse to acknowledge the God who reveals Himself plainly to you, but you're blaming God for your situation, saying, He has not been clear. He has not given you sufficient evidence. And so you add insult to injury to the Almighty by your feigned lack of militance, but your hostility against God is coming through, and you need to repent of it, because you know, as well as you know your own name, that God is 
I remember being invited on a university campus several years ago to speak to a club that was called the Atheist Club. And they asked me as a Christian apologist to give the intellectual case for the existence of God to their group. And so I did, and as I went through the arguments for the existence of God, we kept things at a perfectly intellectual plane where all things were safe and comfortable until we got to the end of my lecture, and I said, I'm giving you arguments for the existence of God, but I feel like I'm carrying coals to Newcastle because I have to tell you what I think. I think I don't have to prove to you that God exists because I think you already know it. And your problem is not that you don't know that God exists. Your problem is that you despise the God whom you know exists. Your problem is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. You hate God. Well, talk about paroxysms of fury. I unleashed it with that, but uh, I didn't back away from it, obviously. That's what the apostle is saying here. He's saying that God has manifestly, plainly and clearly, shown Himself to everyone. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. The word there in the Latin is the word that is the root for our English word, conspicuous, that God has made His revelation of Himself conspicuous to everyone since the creation of the world. It wasn't that once in a while, every 3,000 years, God popped a clue into history about His existence, but since the day and the dawn of creation every moment of creation, God is constantly manifesting Himself through what He says here, the things that are made. Now, it's not just that God gives us a world and said, okay, sit down and begin to think about where that world came from and reason from the cosmos back to God. I mean, we do that, but it's more than that. God doesn't just give a world and say, guess where it came from. But what Paul is saying is that in that world, every second, God is manifesting Himself through the things that are made, so that His testimony to His own nature is plainly evident every second. You know, the theological question I've been asked more than any question there is, is the question, what happens to the poor innocent native in Africa who's never heard of Jesus? I always answer that question the same way. The poor innocent native in Africa who's never heard of Jesus doesn't need to hear of Jesus. He has nothing to worry about. Don't bother sending missionaries to, to preach to him. You'll probably mess him up. That poor innocent native in Africa goes, when he dies, he goes straight to heaven He doesn't pass go. He doesn't collect his $200. He has no need for a Savior. Jesus did not come in the world to save 
innocent people. Now, it'll take you more than the lamp of Diogenes to find an innocent native in Africa because there aren't any innocent natives in Africa or in Australia or in South America or in Europe, Asia, or anywhere else. But you see, here's the way people think. They think, well, if they haven't heard of Jesus, then they're surely innocent. No, again, Jesus comes into a world that is already under the indictment of God the Father because the whole world has rejected God the Father who has revealed Himself clearly to them. So let's disavow ourselves of any idea of innocent people anywhere. Now, people again will say, well, well, will will somebody send, will God send people to hell for rejecting Jesus of whom they've never heard? Of course not. God's not going to punish a person for rejecting somebody they've never heard of. Oh, there's this big sigh of relief. Well, then we don't have to worry about them. What do you mean? Their destination is certainly hell for the rejection of the one they have heard of. Because what Paul is saying here in Romans 1 is that every human being has heard of God, knows of God, clearly perceives God, and rejects that knowledge. And because of that, lives every day exposed to the wrath of God, and the only possible way He can be rescued from that wrath is through the Savior. And so, Paul is setting the foundation for the urgency of the gospel here in chapter 1. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Let me just comment on that. The great philosopher of the 18th century, perhaps the greatest agnostic of all time, Immanuel Kant, revolutionized the world of philosophy by giving a systematic and comprehensive critique of the traditional and classic arguments for the existence of God. And without going into the details of that critique of pure reason, Kant argued this way that you cannot move from the visible things of this world and reason back to the invisible God. God is in a realm that is not known through theoretical reason or empirical investigation. Basically, Kant was saying you can't get there from here. Now, if Kant is right, then manifestly the Apostle Paul is wrong. And if Paul is right, then Kant was wrong, and it's time that the Christian church stop rolling over and play dead at the feet of Immanuel Kant and show the error of Kant's reasoning. Because here the affirmation is so clearly set forth by Paul that the invisible God, even though He cannot be seen because He's invisible, is clearly seen. Now, that sounds contradictory. He's not seen directly, but He's seen through the things that are made, because God, who is invisible, reveals His invisible character through that which you can see with your eyes. Even He reveals… Don't you go away mad, Linda. 
even His eternal power and Godhead. So what is part of the content here of that general revelation? We're speaking of the revelation that God gives generally, that is, to the whole world. And it's also a revelation whose content is general. It doesn't give us all the specific details about the character and nature of God, but it certainly gives us knowledge of God in general and what's included in that content. Well, so far we've seen His eternal power. So God's self-existent eternal being is revealed in every leaf, every page, every raindrop, every inch of the cosmos since the beginning of time. This temporal world that we see is the vehicle of divine revelation to manifestly and clearly reveal that it is the result of an eternal being. And a God who is not only eternal, but He's eternally powerful. It's His his eternal power that is revealed and His Godness, which we could understand to refer to His inherent attributes, His immutability, His omniscience, His omnipresence, all that fits deity is made clear through nature. We will see later that also included in this content that God reveals of Himself is His moral perfection, His holiness, His righteousness, His sovereign right to impose obligations upon His creatures without their permission or assent. God inherently has the eternal right to command from His creatures what is pleasing to Him. And so Paul says that all of these things are made clear to us. Then he goes on to fully explain the reason, the rationale for God's manifestation and revelation of His wrath, so that they are without excuse. That is, they are given no basis for an apologia, says the Greek, no basis for a response or a reply, or an answer to God's indictment. Now, let me ask you, what do you suppose is the answer that Paul is anticipating corrupt and fallen human beings will try to give to God on the day of judgment? Oh, God, I didn't know. didn't know you were there. Oh, if only you would have made your revelation clear to me. If only I could have known you, then I would have dedicated my whole life to you, and I would have been your obedient servant. But how can you expect me to follow you when you're hidden, you're invisible, and I didn't know the gun was loaded? And I'm very, very sorry, my friend. 
the plea that people will be tempted to make is a plea of an excuse. But Paul says that everyone in this world stands without an excuse. There's no excuse of ignorance before God, not when He Himself has given you the information so that any plea of ignorance will be an empty plea and will have no effect with God. And again, why? Because although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, neither were they grateful. Let me talk about that for just a second. There's one somewhat well-known Dutch philosopher and theologian came to this text and he said, yes, of course there is a general revelation. God has objectively revealed Himself to the human race, but that general revelation yields no natural theology. That is, the revelation never gets through. And they cite Calvin, who talks about man in his fallen condition, walks through this glorious theater of nature wearing a blindfold. I think it's unfortunate that the great reformer used that metaphor because it wasn't consistent with everything else he taught about our response to general revelation. But anyway, this theologian goes on to say, the revelation is there, God does His part, but due to our sin, due to our fallen condition, the knowledge doesn't get through, doesn't penetrate. I mean, doesn't Paul write to the Corinthians and say to them that the natural man does not know God? He does. And yet here in Romans 1, Paul says the natural man does know God. Now, how are we to reconcile those two statements of Paul? Well, I think the reconciliation is found in the language itself. The word gnosko in the Greek means to know, but it can mean to know intellectually by cognition, which is the Latin term, or it can mean to know intimately. As Abraham knew his wife and she conceived, it doesn't mean to teach that Adam got a dossier of Eve, met her on the street, said, I'm Madam, I'm Adam. And she said, my name is Eve. He said, happy to know you. And all of a sudden she was pregnant. No. It's speaking of a deeper kind, an intimate knowledge that the Bible says that those who were born of the Spirit are born unto this intimate, salvific, personal knowledge of God that only the redeemed have. And when he writes to the Corinthians, Paul, speaking of the Spirit, who gives that kind of knowledge. And he says, the natural man doesn't know God in that sense. But in the sense of having an intellectual cognition, a cognitive awareness of the reality of God, here Paul is saying, knowing God, their problem is not that the knowledge doesn't get through. The reason why God is angry with everybody in the world is because that knowledge does get through. And it's what we do with the knowledge that provokes the wrath of God. 
knowing God, they refused to honor Him as God. Neither were they grateful. The most fundamental, foundational sin in our fallen, corrupt nature is the sin of idolatry, the sin of refusing to honor God as He is. We want to strip Him of His attributes, turn Him into a God made in our image, a God we can live with, a God that we can be comfortable with. The little old lady, after every time I preach this, will raise her hand and say, but my God is a God of love, not a God of wrath. Then your God, who's incapable of wrath, is not the God who is. Because the God of love who is revealed in Scripture is also the God who is angry with sin, who is the God of justice and righteousness, who is the God of holiness. And you can't just take those attributes of God that you are comfortable with and embrace them while rejecting the rest. When you do that, you join the throng of humanity that suppresses the truth of God and refuse to honor Him as God or to be thankful. The refusal to honor God, the refusal to worship God, and hearts that are not filled with joy and gratitude for what He gives is what defines our fallenness, dear friends. How few people there are in this world who delight in the worship of God. Every Sunday morning I go to breakfast, I go out to breakfast, and every Sunday morning after I'm there and have ordered, one of our members from our congregation comes in, sits down at the table right across from me, and we tend to chat over breakfast. And this morning, just as I was ready to leave to come here for the service, he looked at me and he said, R.C., what do you think about all these people that are in here? You know they're not going to church. And I said, I know. They're not just here. They're at the country club. They're everywhere but church because nothing is more displeasing to them than to worship God. They don't want to hear about God. That knowledge is suppressed. It's pushed down. It's in jail. It's incarcerated. And they have no desire to have God in their minds. The natural man is at enmity with God. And Paul tells us elsewhere that we by nature do not want to have God in our thinking. And when He presents Himself to our minds, we immediately suppress it, push it away. They did not glorify Him as God, neither were they thankful, but what? They became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, not only did I study philosophy and get a degree in philosophy, studied it in graduate school, and taught philosophy in, at the university, and one of my favorite ways of teaching philosophy was doing a study of the history of philosophy. And one of the things that, that would would stand out. The students who studied the history of philosophy of this, they said, 
Really, if you look at some of the most brilliant people who've ever lived on this planet, you wonder how it's possible that people of such titanic intellect could come to such different conclusions about the nature of reality. Who was more brilliant than Thomas Aquinas? Who was more brilliant than Aurelius Augustine? And yet they were fiercely convinced of the reality of God, and their lives were driven by that conviction. Their conviction of God was at the very basis, at the root and foundation of everything else they believed as thinkers. And then you have a brilliant person like Jean-Paul Sartre or John Stuart Mill or Albert Camus, and you see these people of such gifted intellect ending up clear on the other end of the spectrum, embracing nihilism ala Nietzsche, saying that there is no meaning, there is no God, there is no significance to human experience. How can such brilliant people end up so far away? Well, listen, if at the very beginning of your pursuit of knowledge, at the very earliest stage of knowledge, the first thing you do is categorically deny what you know to be true, the reality of God, that frankly, the more brilliant you are after that starting point, the more consistent, the more logical you are in your thinking the rest of the way, the further away you'll go from God because you've built your house on a lie so that your thinking becomes an exercise in futility. And the foolish heart is darkened. Again, when Paul speaks of hearts that are darkened, he uses the word foolish. And to the Jew, the judgment of foolish is not an intellectual judgment. It's a moral judgment. That's why Jesus said, be careful. You don't call people fools. Don't say, thou fool. Because it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And there, the fool is not just being stupid, although it is stupid, but he's being wicked because he's denying what he knows to be true. Here's the indictment for the whole world. Knowing God, they refuse to honor Him as God. It's not that they fail to know God and therefore don't honor Him and don't thank Him, but while they know God, they will not honor Him and they will not be grateful. That is the mass of perdition in which we find ourselves as fallen human beings. It's against that background that the gospel comes. Notice, notice what follows. After the foolish heart is darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. 
You know, this, it really gets to me when I hear this ongoing debate every day on television, every day in the newspaper about the intelligent design versus science. Intelligent design, that's not science. Well, the word science means knowledge. And if you know that God is the author of all things, then you know that the affirmation of the existence of God is the purest scientific thought there is. And to deny it or to exclude it is not to be scientific, but to be foolish. But isn't it funny that those who refuse to acknowledge what they know to be true claim such activity in the name of wisdom? They call it science when it's foolishness. A foolishness that betrays a heart of darkness. And what do they do? They don't become atheists generally. They become idolaters. They become religious. They change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds, four-footed animals and creeping things. What? The majestic, self-existent, eternal God of heaven and earth, we exchange the truth of God, and we begin to worship birds, bears, totem poles. Can anything be more ridiculous than a religion that builds on a fundamental refusal to acknowledge what you know to be true, and you trade it in. You trade in the glory of God for the creature. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, and he's going to elaborate on that, and we'll look at that next week, God willing, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Beloved, the word here, exchanged, is a critical term here in the text. It's the Greek word metalosso. And I, I read this text, I can't help but read it through the eyes of modern psychiatry, depth psychiatry, that talks candidly about terms of repression and suppression. And what you learn, and let me ask you this, what kind of ideas do we tend as human beings to suppress or repress, to push down out of our conscious mind? It's not pleasant thoughts, scary thoughts, frightening thoughts, bad memories. That's why when you go to see the psychiatrist and you have this nameless anxiety or dread, you don't know why you're so phobic, you're afraid, but you don't know what you're afraid of, and so he begins to probe you with analytical questions and checks your background, your childhood. Well, how did you get along with your mother? 
and you say, my mother? I had a wonderful relationship with my mother. I love my mother. And the psychiatrist says, wait a minute, your words are saying one thing, but your gestures are telling me something else. He'll ask about your dreams. He begins to probe your subconscious because he knows that when you make this repression, you don't destroy the memory. You exchange it. You exchange it for something you can live with, something that will not bring terror to your mind. And beloved, dear friends, there is nothing in this universe more terrifying to a sinner than God. I know what Freud said, the future of an illusion, the history of discontent, trying to explain the universality of religion. Freud said, why is it that people are so incurably religious? He said, ah, we've invented God to deal with the things in nature that are frightening. By inventing God, we personalize nature. We sacralize nature because the things that threaten us so deeply are hurricanes and fires and tornadoes, pestilence, armies. And we know that in personal relationships that if you're hostile towards me and you come up and you're angry, there are many ways I can try to diffuse your anger. I can try to to butter you up and tell you how great you are. You don't want to be angry with me. I'm the best friend you have around here. That doesn't work. I, I try to appease you with my gifts. I say, look, if you'll just knock it off, I'll put you in my will. I'll pour money to you. I'll magnify your name to the whole community. We learn how to get around human anger. But how do you negotiate with a hurricane? How do you mollify an earthquake? How do you persuade cancer not to visit your house? Well, Freud said you have to personalize nature, sacralize it. You invent a God who's over the hurricane, a God who's over the earthquake, a God who's over the disease, and then you can now talk to God and you can try to appease Him. You give gifts and offerings to Him. You said, I'll serve you the rest of my life if you'll protect me from Wilma and Katrina and all the rest. And so, because of the things that are frightening to us in nature, we posit a God who's above nature to help us cope. Obviously, Freud wasn't there on the Sea of Galilee when the storm arose and threatened to capsize the boat in which Jesus and His disciples were. And you remember the text tells us that the disciples were afraid. Jesus was asleep. And so they went and they shook Him awake and they said, Master, do something or we perish. And so Jesus woke up and He assessed the situation. He looked at the raging sea and the blistering winds and He said, Peace! Be still! And instantly the water was calm. There wasn't a zephyr in the air. 
And what does it say? And the disciples were so grateful, and they said, thank you, Jesus, for removing the cause of our fear. No, do you know what it says? And they became very much afraid. Their fears were increased and intensified, and they said, what manner of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey Him. We're dealing with something transcendent. We have xenophobia, the fear of the stranger here. You see, the holiness of Christ was made manifest in that boat. And suddenly the fear of the people escalated. See, that's where Freud missed the point. If people are going to invent religion to protect them from the fear of nature, why would they invent a God who's more terrifying than nature itself? Because He's holy. No, fallen creatures, when they make idols, do not make holy ones. But we prefer the unholy, the profane, the secular, the God we can control. And so the apostle brings us to that place where we have no excuse, where ignorance cannot be claimed, because God has so manifest Himself to every creature in this world that every last one of us knows that God exists and deserves our honor and our thanks and is not to be traded in or swapped for the creature. Again, let me finish with this where Paul says, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, comma, a Creator, comma, who is blessed forever. Even when Paul is talking about the wrath of God and the universal sin of fallen humanity, he cannot help but break into doxology. Speaking about the Creator who is most blessed, even forever. Well, beloved, Paul will carry on in the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 and tell us about the dreadful consequences to a race of people who live by refusing to acknowledge what they know to be true about the character of God. When you do that, you get a futile mind. You get a blackened heart, and you get a life of radical corruption. You become so exposed to God's displeasure that your only hope on heaven and earth will be the gospel of His dear Son. Remember, this is preparatory. This is the groundwork. Thank God that Paul doesn't stop here in his letter to the Romans. If the Bible stopped here, we would be without hope in this world lost forever. 
in our guilt and in our sin. Finally, when I do talk to people about their intellectual questions about the existence of God, I'll be as patient as I know how, try to answer every question they have intellectually, and then some. But at some point in the discussion, I will finally say, wait a minute. My final question for you is this. What do you do with your guilt? I don't have to argue with people that they're guilty. They know it. And so I say, what do you do with it? Deny it? Blame somebody else? The only refuge from guilt is forgiveness. It's the gospel, which we'll look at more later. Let's pray. Oh, Father, the whole world is filled with Your glory. We can't take two paces on this planet without bumping into them clear, manifest demonstration of Your eternal power and deity. Oh, Father, open our eyes to see what's right in front of our face every second. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.